Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. When a Prime Minister revels in a working majority of 87, who holds the government to account? The opposition labours on a long, very long journey to pick its next leader. Parliament, well, select committee chairs have been elected, but the committees aren't up and running yet. The media, well, this week's bust-up between Number 10 and the Parliamentary Press Corps signals trouble ahead, and so does the government's musing about whether to decriminalise a failure to pay your BBC licence fee. We're taking a look at the whole question of scrutiny and whether the government's managing to get away without any at the moment. We'll also be exploring the government's plans for big constitutional reform. Gina Miller, who famously won two legal battles over Brexit, has been talking to us on this, her next battlefront. That's coming up later. And we've got a great panel in the studio today. Hannah White is the IFG's deputy director and oversees our work on Parliament and the civil service. Hannah, welcome back. Thank you. You usually keep your Twitter feed firmly work-based, but I saw that you cheered some plans to pedestrianise Parliament Square just (laughs) now that all the demonstrators have gone home. What have you got against the number three bus? I'm a great fan of the number three bus. I'm also a believer that we need to make our cities less um, car-centric. And I I think when I saw that uh, on Twitter, I had a big flashback to 10 years ago when I was working in Parliament and these plans for pedestrianising the square first came up. So about time they uh, were realised, I think. MPs may not be quite so convinced if they can't get their taxis. Back in the studio as well is our constitutional expert, Kath Haddon. Kath, we've had a very big legal week. We've had uh, two events looking at legal constitutional stuff. Is that where it's all going from now on? Um, It's certainly going to be a theme of the next couple of years, but uh, indications are event. Mark Harper, a former minister, said that he didn't think any constitutional commission would happen till next year. So it gives me a little bit more time to actually do some thinking about it. Not quite uh, quite as quickly as the spring, as the government is saying. Yeah. We're delighted to be joined today by Paul Harrison. He spent two years as Theresa May's press secretary, four years as a special advisor to Jeremy Hunt, and is now out of government and working at Lexington Communications. What is it like to be told to go from Downing Street at about an hour's notice? It's very strange. I mean, in in my case, we knew it was coming because Theresa had said not only would she not lead the next stage of the negotiations on trade, but also she then set a date to, uh, to leave and to start the Tory leadership contest. But the actual sort of mechanics of that is a bit peculiar. You go to your desk and to work uh, as usual that day, knowing that at the point the outgoing PM goes to the palace to resign, you have an hour to leave by a side door and they don't let you walk down the street with anything you may have left on your desk or in your locker in a little bag. Uh, someone takes your phone on the way out and gives you a letter about the Official Secrets Act and then uh, and then that's it. You're, and then you're you, out. You emerge blinking into the light. And do they, because it's always difficult for uh, civil servants to try and manage it so that the incoming team don't accidentally encounter the outgoing team, which I think they failed in David Cameron's case, but did you manage to sort of sneak out before they were in? Uh, we did, yeah. So uh, Theresa went to the palace, we left, most of us went to the pub uh, and, <laughs> uh, and then there was... A small intervening time by the time Boris was on his way back from the palace, having been invited to form a government, uh, everybody else came in through a different door to the one that we went out yeah. of. And you also wrote a piece for The Times saying Brexit broke David Cameron, now it broke my old boss, Theresa May. Do you think Boris is going to get away without uh, a test like that? It will be an interesting year, but he has a mandate that neither of his predecessors had for various reasons. So, I mean, he's, he occupies a much, much stronger position and that's not just about the parliamentary maths. Uh, so there are undoubtedly challenges and they'll feel very challenging for everybody who's in there right now. But I suspect that his path will be slightly smoother than, than the one we encountered. We'll have to see, particularly around the middle of the year. 
Anyway, let's begin now on a more sober note with the awful incident in Streatham on the weekend and how the government is planning to respond. The attacker stabbed two people just a week after being released halfway through a sentence for spreading extremist material. And the government is expected to table emergency legislation, which it wants to get through by the end of this month, which would end the automatic release halfway through a sentence for terrorists. That's not just for future convicted terrorists, but more than 200 have already been convicted of terrorism. And part of the controversy here is whether the government can change the application of sentences retrospectively. Paul, how big a deal is this for Boris Johnson? It's a big deal. I mean, I think, you know, ultimately his government, and I don't want this to sound pejorative, it's meant to be just genuinely an observation, uh, his government is more populist in tone than its predecessors. And obviously, this is an area of public concern. There will be some advice going in that sort of says, you know, changing the retrospective application of a law and its intersection with a couple of EU bits of law that are still relevant in this area will be difficult. But I think he's trying to respond genuinely to you know something that is clearly worrying because if you have sort of an automatic application of a rule that means that people who are convicted of quite serious crimes are virtually automatically uh, given early release, that that seems that will seem very counterintuitive and very hard to justify, and so I think he's going to have a good go at, at trying to change that. I mean, it's clearly an area of public concern, and I think with the events that happened on Sunday, rightly. Now, there's a lot of uh, talk of legal challenges already, mm. whether this is going to bring him in a collision with the European Convention on Human Rights, which mm. we signed up to anyway, even though we've left the EU. What, what do you think about that? I think, I mean, it is going to get legal, a cha- legal challenge. Uh, it'll end up in the High Court and probably a showdown in the Supreme Court in the first instance. But actually, before even that, they're trying now. They were going to bring in this change anyway. The difference now is they want to bring it retrospectively to people who've already been mm. uh, convicted. First of all, they've got to get it the legislation through, and they can do that in the Commons in, in emergency legislation, which they're going to do next week. Mm. But after that, they've got to bring it through the laws, and this is the first big question. And is, they're trying to do it by February 27th because the first of these uh, terrorist prisoners um, due for release is due to be released on the 28th. Exactly, yeah. And so the big question is whether or not the Lords decide to uh, put up any resistance to this. So Uh, that's to the legislation itself? To the legislation itself before then, uh, you know, they face any High Court action over it. But the government seems pretty bullish about the prospect of a showdown with the courts over this. I mean, they obviously want to be seen to be taking action in, in response to what's happened and they don't seem to be shy of the prospect of uh, having a having a yeah and I mean there's a long the history Court. of this kind of stuff you look back at control orders to again I mean this goes to the point of actually even when you're talking about people being released on license even when you're talking about other ways in which to monitor people and to protect the public what are the mechanisms that the government have got you know obviously there was a 12 year battle over prisoner voting rights so the government are used to wanting to have a battle with the courts and, and their argument on this one is that it's not changing the sentence retrospectively, which would open them to a lot mm. of challenge. It's simply changing the application of the of the sentence. But this, the, the, these words indefinite detention, those did drop into this and rather inflame it further, uh, didn't they? Uh, yeah, they did. Um, there are a lot of people who are still very interested in civil liberties on the Tory benches. I mean, David Davis famously uh, resigned and called a by-election over uh, civil liberties, what seems like a lifetime ago, but it but it happened in up in Yorkshire. So, yeah, I, I think it will be... I think what the government think ultimately is that they have public opinion and right on their side on this one, and so they will run hard at it, but there will be a number of obstacles, some of which we're probably not even really anticipating mm-hmm. right now.
now let's turn to scrutinising, well, how scrutiny of government works itself. So I want to start with the government's handling of the media. It's banned ministers from appearing on the Today programme at Newsnight, and Number 10 this week had a big fight with Lobby. That's the journalist working out of Westminster. And then it's thinking of making non-payment of your licence fee no longer a criminal offence, something that could hit BBC funding very hard. Paul, you were Theresa May's spokesman for two years and a difficult time too. I'm sure you didn't love the lobby, but do you feel the system basically works? I think like any like any system, you would be naive if not stupid to say it's you know unimprovable. And there are faults that... Uh, that are pretty obvious, I think, with a lobby to to someone who spends a lot of time uh, sort of working closely with them. It has a tendency to encourage groupthink. Um, there are there's sometimes an element of triviality in the way that uh, in the way that stories are reported. And I think, it, you know, in fairness, the response to that would be it's the way to uh, engage people and you know and bring them into coverage of sometimes quite obscure subjects and you know, that's particularly true of Brexit. Um, I feel you've been quite kind though. I mean, some people say, look, scrap it. Um, it, it. It encourages kind of cronyism and it shuts out all kinds of other titles. What about the you know new websites, not great established old newspaper titles, but new websites who yeah, really, I want, mean, really want to get access to the other show? the other half, I suppose, of what I'm going to say. And I'm, I, in answer to your question, I'm I'm reticent to do that. I mean, it is. Aside from anything else, it's a terrible look for the government of the day. You know, we're talking about scrutiny and there is no other way to perceive sort of big restrictions on the way the lobby work imposed by the government as anything other than an attempt to restrict scrutiny. There's a, uh, there's a, there's a line uh, in the Times leader yesterday it was from a Tom Stoppard player that said, I'm with you on the free press. It's the newspapers I can't stand. <laughs> and, you know, ultimately... Most of those guys, uh, for all the brickbats, kind of are interested in finding out what's happening in government and telling people about it. And that's the job of a reporter. Most of them are really every bit as public spirited as the politicians that they cover. You know, that is something that I probably would have said through more gritted teeth uh, when I was uh, in the old job. But, But they perform a valuable function. I think probably this week has been a little bit of misunderstanding and possibly confected outrage on both sides because we do know the lobby likes to write about themselves. Um, in that, there were some people that were invited to a briefing and for sort of, obviously the, the audience of this podcast will be more educated than most, but the way that this works is that since Alistair Campbell's time, the Prime Minister's official spokesman stroke press secretary does on-the-record briefings twice a day, uh, every weekday while Parliament... Uh, is sitting so and those are called lobby briefings so i don't know why there isn't another word used but lobby briefings happen to the lobby which is also a group of people uh so these things happen twice a day what we're talking about in terms of people not being allowed to a particular briefing we're not talking about a lobby briefing we're talking about essentially a piece of background information that was given out say not on the record downing street's making a big deal saying look this was a special briefing yeah Um, to a smaller group of journalists and then they shot some of them out and then the others all decided to walk out exactly yeah so which was done to a a sort of selective group of people the merits of that you know i suppose you can talk about what happened was that some of the people who weren't invited found out it was happening turned up uninvited and then i guess in a clinch someone uh, in Downing Street who people will be familiar with, the Director of Communications, had a decision to make, which was, do I allow some people who we haven't invited to come into a briefing that is not, as I say, part of the lobby system, or do I sort of 
stick to the people that we invited in the first place, mm. chose the former. They did, I mean, they made it worse themselves, though, by referring to this inner lobby, though, as if there was a sort of two-tier thing. And then there was a lot of, in that insular argument that happened on Twitter between lobby journalists, a lot of arguments about whether the inner lobby did or did not exist uh, and was a thing. But the other issue that came up was that the briefing was to be by people who are civil servants, so mm. officials, and get, got referred to as yeah. technical yeah. briefings, and whether or not that was right and proper as a opposed to, you know, mm. just a briefing where it's uh, sort of the political yeah. uh, side of number 10. So you mean that if if it's political, they should be better able to, to ch- pick and choose who they talk to? If it's technical stuff, then everyone that was should be the, able to come and get the That was the argument that those that yeah. opposed it put forward, yeah. Do you think this way, works, yeah. though? On the one hand, yes, the government can shut, shut down access to, you know, what it wants to say privately, but... The media is very plural, uh, mm. has a lot of different ways of getting information. And in, in the past, when this kind of thing has come up, and it isn't completely new, the media has just found other ways of, of writing things quite often that the government doesn't doesn't want. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say, to say I, I have no dog in this fight anymore, but the... The, the briefing that we're talking about that was had a selective invite list, and I don't know precisely who was and who wasn't invited, but you know we've seen lots of reports, so there was a selective invite list. And that was over and above the government's obligations to do this twice daily lobby briefing. I mean, we used to do it every now and again on technical subjects. So, you know, when we publish the draft withdrawal agreement or, you know, something that is difficult and, and chunky but will also occupy big space in the news agenda, you make people available who are authoritative on that subject. You do it on background so that they're not attributable. And just the idea is to improve the quality of the coverage in terms of its factual basis. I mean, every now and again, if we were on a long flight somewhere to, you know, to a, a G20 or a G7 or something, if we knew that security issues were on the table, you might say, Let, let's, you can have a, a chat to the Deputy National Security Advisor who's with us, you know, talk through on background just so that, I mean, without being condescending, you understand the issues better. Mm. Uh, and that hopefully improves the quality of, of the coverage. Do you think that the government can do without the media and certainly the mainstream media, completely. So when the Prime Minister made a speech last week, he put it out on, on Facebook. He said, mm. look, I'm not, I'm not going to have a, a television broadcast. Mm. And we've, we've got this so-called boycott of the, of the main BBC in, inquisitorial programmes. Mm. Um, does, it, does it matter? I think, I mean, there, there's a question about whether you can do without the mainstream media. I think you're fairly foolish to try. I don't actually think this is what the government is doing either. I think they have a... Rightly or wrongly, they have a genuine grievance with how some things uh, come across on the Today programme. And there is also, I think, uh, the feeling that in some of the new seats that are now Conservative, it's not necessarily the best way going on the Today programme at 10 past 8 in the morning and getting beaten up by you know, A and other uh, mm-hmm. is not necessarily the best way to re- reach those voters anyway. But I don't think you know what you're seeing is a government that is systematically trying to shun the mainstream media or shut out scrutiny. There is, I mean, it's, it's also, it's a new government trying to sort of control its narrative and control also itself because the other thing we had this week on Sunday was talk about how Dominic Cummings was going around restaurants in SW1 and trying to find out whether or not any other advisors were meeting with journalists and controlling all of that. he has other things to do. Yeah, I mean, this probably comes under your trivial uh, banner of things that we ended up talking about this weekend but it goes to that point that they are trying to control leaks they are trying to control which me- ministers go out and you know do media appearances i mean nikki morgan current culture secretary was on the today program this morning so in 
you know, either she unilaterally lifted the ban herself <laughs> or it, the ban has been lifted. Mm. Um, but I was interested in what you said, Paul, earlier about lobby briefings being like the government's obligation and whether everyone now has a consistent understanding of what obligations are because mm. obviously the you know the media the today program might have felt a few you know months back that, yeah. that ministers did have an obligation to come and talk to them and mm. the bbc might have felt that uh, all parties had an obligation to talk to andrew neil before the mm. election yeah. um or to participate in leaders debates and actually yeah. maybe the government's just saying well these things mm. which were accepted as obligations we don't yeah. see as obligations any longer I want to touch just briefly on what may prove to be the serious core of it, which is the the governments are looking at the funding of the BBC. And there are two schools of thought on this. One, uh, look, this is a vindictive swipe by this government who is uh, discussed trying to control the media and undermine the BBC. Or uh, on the other side, look, uh, the BBC's funding needs to be looked at in the in the in the age of Netflix and YouTube and all this. Its, its charters coming up in seven years anyway. Yeah. Um, and so this is an absolutely mm. proper debate. What what? And we're going to have to look at this in detail as the details come out. But what is your sense of the tone of of this now? Well, it's not a new argument. I think you know, criminalising someone for non-payment of the licence fee or not and the merits of both of those two uh, perspectives has been around for a long time. So it was looked at in a previous charter settlement, I think. And you know, the conclusion then was that actually you know, the way that the BBC functions as it is now is probably, is probably the best way at, at that particular moment in time. I don't think it's an act of vindictiveness. I think it is, you know... Uh, it's a legitimate question. And you've got to bear in mind, of course, that if you commission a study or a consultation, you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. So it could be that uh, the question is answered again by somebody saying, well, no, the, the, mm. the funding model the BBC has is the best one. And, uh, you know, and I, I wouldn't change the judicial basis that the settlement applies to individual citizens by. I don't know. But, yeah, I wouldn't see the two as, as inextricably linked. Aside from anything else, uh the issuing of the consultation, obviously a planned piece of work that is underpinned by official input and comes out of a department, and then something that happened on Monday or Tuesday that was essentially random because a load of people that you didn't expect to be in a room turned up in a room and asked to stay in it. Of course, scrutiny doesn't just come from the media. It comes from Parliament and its select committees, which can summon ministers and civil servants and call for evidence. Almost none of Boris Johnson's ministers have appeared before select committees, and the Prime Minister himself has yet to subject himself to a liaison committee hearing. And the opposition is absent from the stage. The awkward squad of MPs, all those ex-Tories turned independents, they're not around either. Hannah, tell us about how select committees are set up and the chairs picked and what makes one really work well. So we've now got the chairs of all the 28 committees who have to be elected by the whole House. So that's happened. We know who those, those people are going to be. There are some other committees where um, they elect their own chairs once they've got members and those are coming further down the line. Um, that includes actually the European Scrutiny Committee, which will be a, uh, an interesting one. Um, we are now uh, in the stage where committee members are being elected. They get elected by their own parties. Uh, so they elect the right number of people for each committee. And my understanding is that the Conservative Party is doing this in a few waves um, because actually they have so many seats on committees. They want mm. to let people bid for the ones they're keenest on first before they then um, uh, do the elections for the less uh, popular ones. So once we have all the names, those get put to the House and the committees get set up. And your very interesting question 
question of what makes a committee good or bad. I mean, I think I could uh, bore on about this for hours, but actually I think, you know... Well, you can go and tell them. <laughs> there's three key things, I think. One is having a really important... Um, sense of your own impact so what you can actually do which is going to have an impact on government um, and on the issues you care about Uh, ineffective committees just pick up on topics say we must do something on this and don't really think about what they're trying to achieve the second thing is they need to really think about their relationships effective committees are the ones who are well networked into their sector uh, who have good connections with civil servants uh, and and with ministers and who can really sort of understand what's going on on the other side and how their work can play into that and then finally I think it's about expertise it's about really knowing what you talk about you know why should people listen to select committees there are a lot of voices out there these days so unless you are picking the right topics for discussion uh, and investigation, unless you're asking the best questions, which people who know about it think are the right questions, then you're not going to have impact. Which which of the committees the government's really going to be looking out for? There's still a Brexit committee, isn't there? Yeah, um, well, I, there's, sort of. there's different kind of categories of it. You've got things like the Brexit committee, uh, which will continue, at least for the foreseeable future, and that, headed by Hilary Benn, is going to be an area, because he is well-connected, he does have forensic insights into it, and, yeah, he represents the opposition. So there'll be some, and also the Public Accounts Committee, which are headed by opposition MPs, so they're willing to go toe-to-toe with the government. But there's and other... And that's really on public spending and, and the Ministry uh, yeah. of Defence paying too much for a various kit and all that kind of thing. Exactly. And, and and also an awful lot of looking into policies and what went wrong with them. Um, but there's other committees that are headed by Conservatives that still really matter because it shows up what your backbenchers are thinking about things. So, uh, you know, defence is, is obviously one which is a big totemic issue for the Conservatives. They really care about that. Um, those kind of committees still matter because remember that the, the government will have a majority on, uh, you know, these committees, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they get to control the agenda of what goes on in them, what conclusions they come up to and so forth. And also the really important part of this for a lot of ministers is actually appearing in front of select committees. That's when the embarrassment happens. That's when you've got to know your stuff. You're on telly, you're on record. And if you get things wrong, as Amber Rudd found out, you could be out of a job very quickly. Can ministers refuse to turn up? Uh, They don't have to appear before committees. Um, Committees are constantly frustrated that as well as their own department, they would often like to talk to Treasury uh, ministers because the Treasury has obviously a cross-cutting remit and Treasury uh, ministers are very good at refusing to turn up to any committees other than the Treasury uh, committee. Um, Committees can summon um, anyone within the UK to come and uh, appear before them, but uh, not MPs and not peers. And a government's really worried about this. There's all this stuff going on, and then this summons comes from some committee down in uh, in Parliament saying, "Can you please turn up?" And obviously, you're going to have to prepare for it. And how, how much of a source I mean, of grief is it on an individual level? So, I worked at uh, the Department of Health for four years, as you said before. I worked in number ten, so you obviously have quite a lot of input from health ministers to the health committee, and sometimes mm. other sometimes other committees. And there is a bit of a psychological exercise that people forget here, because as a minister. You're an MP, you're notionally in charge of a brief and, Mm -hmm. you know, clearly at health, some of those briefs had big numbers in terms of public spending associated with them. So there's a psychological exercise where you're sort of sitting in judgment in front of your peers, other MPs who are really trying to expose whether you're any good or not. And that, I think, must be quite an interesting exercise. It's not just about sort of... Because to be honest, half time you're not on telly anyway, unless you're watching the fairly specialist channels. But it's there. Um, it's, but it's, it's, record, there. it's recorded. If you you're going to make a slip, it's, it's, it's going to be out there. there. For yeah. And you're only really, if you if you're there to talk about, you know, 
some fairly obscure and arcane aspect of policy you're only really going to make the news if you stuff up so there is a sort of you know it it's good in terms of scrutiny in some ways the same way as as pmqs is because it just kind of forces people to get on top of their game and make sure they really do know what happens and the, the prime minister spends be. a lot of time preparing for prime minister's questions but we know yeah. from civil servants that they they have to coach or help ministers get on top of the facts they do they? and now, i mean that can be a good sort of day's preparation they'll go in with these massive binders mm. you know it really matters and also remember permanent secretaries go and appear before these and senior civil servants and they really worry about it actually most of the evidence on impact or some evidence on impact of select committees is a lot of it is down to the government sort of proactively doing things because it's worried about a select committee appearance. Yeah, having to prepare. I think that's the thing. You know, a minister is called to give evidence on a topic which they haven't really focused on and actually they have to gen up on it and then they start yeah. to ask questions and say, mm-hmm. well, actually, why are we doing it this way? Because I yeah. haven't paid attention to that. And while we're talking about the impact of scrutiny, I think that, you know, certainly one of my own reflections from the department was I was a media special advisor, so they tend to fall into two categories, but I, I was the media one. And... Often one of my most potent arguments for killing off what was a stupid idea would be to say, if we do this, this is what the Daily Mail are going to say. This mm. is what the, the, you know, the bulletins will look like on the Today programme. And just try to explain to officials who are kind of bound up with the merits of a particular policy proposal that when it actually hits the public domain, this is what people are going to think of it and try to illustrate that a bit because it's not necessarily an area of expertise for other people. So we, we've, we've been calling... Um for select committees to, to uh, call back ministers and uh, civil servants, even when they've left the job, mm. you know, to try and get more accountability for decisions that have been made in the past when something has gone wrong. And often these decisions, you know, it, it doesn't become clear for years that something has gone wrong with a road or, or indeed, a, a, a tower block or something. Uh, Hannah, does that work really at all? It doesn't happen very often. Um, as you say, we think it ought to be able to happen. And, and again, that that's all about the impact of that is the the incentive it then puts on people to think well actually if I move job in six months time I'm going to move away from this and I won't ever have to talk about it again actually if people are aware that they might be back before the public accounts committee justifying what they did and, and their reputation being on the line then I think that changes the incentives for, for people and, and decisions they're making. Well this is a kind of soft power though I mean do we think that they need more powers they famously don't have the powers that congressional committees in the states have to summon people and insist they turn up. No it all comes down to contempt of parliament we've discussed this in the past and mm. the fact that, that parliament no longer locks people up in Big Ben um, which it used to do. The, uh, this is a big problem and one of these most famous cases was Dominic Cummings the Prime Minister's now advisor uh, refusing to come and appear before select committee um, and it enraged them and they you know complained about the fact that they have no powers to do it but it it is a tricky one of working out what their power should be and it's not just about that it's also about actually getting papers out of the government um at the moment a lot of not it, just people but papers. not just people yes. but papers finding out information this is a wider issue about how parliament gets hold of details from uh from the government but yeah it's a it's a big big issue and I suppose there have been some improvements to select committee powers in that the chairs get paid a bit more, so it's more attractive. And, mm. you know, you sometimes get slightly higher calibre people and, you know, sort of the the frequency of hearings, the amount of notice you have to give, all of that's improved, it's mm. sort of pulling power from away from the executive. So the, the, there definitely have been improvements. I and think. I think the interesting thing with these chair elections is we've had a couple of former secretaries of state now, you know, yeah. we've got... 
Jeremy Hunt, your mm-hmm. old boss, Indeed. is going to be back, you know, chair of the Health and Social Care Committee, mm. presumably talking to officials about decisions that he will have made himself yeah. and how those are being implemented uh, in the department. Yeah. So that's going to be quite interesting. The committee yeah. can't call him back to give evidence. <laughs> I think no. that would stop being complicated. Actually that, I mean, that's another interesting point about resources on all of this. You know, select committees have a very limited number of people to be specialists who understand what goes on in the department. Having your former Secretary of State there who knew the sort of detail of this, saw the papers, he's going to know, you know, as it were, where the bodies are buried. Should they all be paid, not just the chair? Um, I'd say not. I mean, I think most of the uh, MPs who aren't on the front bench in some form are, are... sit on the committee. Um, I think it's a pretty standard part of uh, an MP's job to do that, to hold the the government to account. And I think that um, it might make it much more of a kind of tokenistic role if people felt uh, like they do a bit with the House of Lords. They had to turn up to committee hearings in order to sort of get their allowance or justify their their paycheck. I'd be against that. Well, anyway, we can continue that one. I think we might have a difference there. Or whether they would take it more, um, even more seriously, put in the work. is a a lot of work. I doubt that. Right. (laughs) 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 To be explored in the future. Now, Gina Miller was one of the breakout stars of the Brexit drama. She won two court cases against the government over its handling of Brexit in defence of Parliament's role, becoming a hero and hate figure to many. Now the UK has left the European Union, she's campaigning to highlight what constitutional reforms which Boris Johnson's government may be trying to make might actually mean. She spoke at our event this week on the government's proposed constitutional commission and afterwards she spoke to Sam McCrory. Your name is synonymous with two huge court cases, and many people will see you as Gina Miller, anti-Brexit campaigner, but how would you describe yourself? Well, it's quite frustrating when that label is uh, put out there, because both cases were about the fundamentals of our democracy, our constitution. It was about parliamentary sovereignty, that we pay our money, we make our vote to elect individuals who then are part of the system of scrutinising government and ensuring there is no overreaching of government uh, ministerial power. And that's exactly what the two cases were defending. So the parliamentary sovereignty uh, slogans that were being said throughout the referendum and then after the referendum were exactly what I was defending. So it's much more important than Brexit, in my view, and it was simply about giving Parliament its voice. Going back to your first case, the one on Article 50, which you said was to maintain the principle that the Parliament was sovereign, was the court the right place to resolve that, do you think? Yes, because if you look at Article 50, it says quite clearly that a member state can leave along the lines of its constitutional requirements. And our constitutional requirements is that if people's rights are going to change, which it would have done by or has done with triggering Article 50, that needed to involve our parliament and could not be under the royal prerogative. So it was a fundamental rewriting or would have been Mm -hmm. a fundamental rewriting and precedent, new precedent set for how royal prerogative could be used on the domestic plane. So it was very much the case that it had to be tested in the courts to see if it was legal, because if it hadn't been and the Prime Minister Prime Minister May had triggered Article 50 using the royal prerogative, it could have been a scenario further down the line where we as a nation could have been sued by the EU for not following Article 50. And you were also keen to, to make sure the Parliament had a bigger role throughout, which they did get, but do you think they used it well in the end? 
It was disappointing, I won't hide that, that having fought for Parliament to be back where they should be legally and morally and in our representative democracy, that in the first case, they didn't, in my view, do the scrutinise the government. They didn't ask for the impact studies, which were actually legally required uh, when you have public spending and uh, decisions that are going to impact on different parts of the country in different ways. So the MPs rubber stamped on that occasion, in my view, rather than actually scrutinising the plan. It's all very well to say we had the vote, but we had a vote without a plan. And surely that would it should have been in the best interest of their uh, constituencies to ask what the plan was. And what is it that's particularly caught your attention or worried you about this government's agenda? There's a so-called page 48 in the manifesto that sets out its plans for the constitution. I think both page 48 in the constitution, in the manifesto, and what we've heard since post-election and in the last few weeks about this constitutional committee is very, very worrying because I can't understand three things. One is, is this the right time with Brexit, the hardest part of Brexit negotiations yet to come? And the fact that you've got the law, the Aquis coming back onto our law, uh, books, our British law books, without any sort of understanding of how that will operate. And the constitutional, thirdly, issues down the road that could possibly result from Brexit in Northern Ireland and Scotland, why this is particularly the time to be considering these issues. I, I know some commentators are saying it's exactly the time, but I would argue that it needs time, commitment, um, resources to be able to come up with recommendations that are really robust. And to do a short, quick committee um, seems to me to be more about revenge than actually mm. true reform. And do you sense, I mean, having said you were slightly sort of let down by Parliament that time around, what, what, what's your sense on the way Parliament's reacting to this government's plans or proposals for the Constitution? Do you sense there is engagement and the sort of capability to, to scrutinise, to respond? Yeah, good government takes good scrutiny. And at the moment, I have to say I'm in a, a sort of a, a mixed mind at the moment because with an 80-seat majority, I worried where they had, in effect, signed a pledge that they would just be sort of more of nodding dogs than parliamentary um, uh, scrutineers. And uh, I haven't seen that. And what has given me encouragement has been the way the backbench, the Tory backbench in particular, have conducted themselves in connection with um, HS2, mm -hmm. Huawei, and also FlyB. So I think they are showing that they, now that Brexit is put to bed, if you like, uh, from a legal point of view, that they will do their roles. And I hope that carries on cross-party. Mm. I mean, you talked, you supported the idea of a progressive alliance before before the last election, and it never, it never came about. What's your view of how opposition parties actually sort of navigated the last few years, navigated Brexit and the challenges that came their way? Going all the way back to post the referendum vote in 2016, it seemed to me to be the most logical and, uh, if you like, a sound way of approaching Brexit, the next phase of Brexit, was to actually have a cross-party uh, committee who were involved because they would have to vote on it. And it wasn't about one party or one side of the argument. It was always going to be about our entire country. And, you know, the uh, our democracy, again, works when there is a strong opposition, but the opposition really weren't showing their strength. Going back to Brexit one more time, Tony Blair has said that it's no longer the time to put forward arguments for rejoining and sort of remain and rejoin are now done. Is that something you agree with? 
I wholeheartedly agree because a divided country does not prosper um, and we don't know where we will be as a country. We don't know where the EU will be. Um, it's not as though we operate in isolation from a geopolitical or geoeconomic point of view. But I would say let's give the government the space and time. When I say time, I mean up till the end of June mm -hmm. to see where their plan is and where they can get to with the EU on a negotiated deal. What I do worry more than rejoining at the moment, which I see as a uh, danger in the headlights, if you like, is the prospect of no deal towards the end of the year and us coming yet again, which I don't like the term cliff edge because I think it would be a dangerous, uh, it's a dangerous term. But we as a country with no deal working just on WTO, operating just on WTO terms, we would be the only country in the world who are only operating on WTO. It's a cold, hard place. So that, for me, is where we need to keep our eye on. What is it that they decide by June? Because we do not have an extension as an option because the Withdrawal Act has made an extension illegal. So unless there's a political will to reverse that part or amend that part of the Act, which I really can't see happening, then we will be heading towards no deal. I remember a few years ago there was a Lib Dem party conference where it was a, a, a wash of rumours that you were about to declare, <laughs> <laughs> possibly even stand as leader. Um, that didn't happen. But no. do you have any political ambitions either to become an MP or go into the House of Lords? No, at this moment in time, I will stay with my campaigning because I think as a, a non-partisan uh, voice, if you like, a non-politically aligned voice, I possibly have more respect in that I come at it from a point of view of transparency, scrutiny and being led by the data and empirical evidence. And I think it's much more reasoned. It's a much more reasoned place for me to be. And hopefully I can achieve more than I can uh, being directly involved in politics right now. That's Gina Miller speaking to Sam McCrory. Paul, tell me about being on the other side, the government side of Gina Miller's legal challenges. Uh not always delightful. Um, I mean, look, she has a, a serious point, which is to try and reduce the amount of prerogative power that the government of the day has on particular issues, and they were almost always related to Brexit. The thing, I suppose, the, th the thought experiment would be, you know, we wouldn't have had meaningful votes, really. Were it so not th for, this was the first battle that yeah, she, she, she won against the, the government, the saying that Parliament had to have a say. Parliament had to approve a Brexit deal in full, otherwise, you know, it, it was inadmissible. And she, she won that case in a court of law. Part of, I think, so let's just play this out. So part of, I think, Boris's real strength when it came to the election this time, as opposed to the one that I was part of with Theresa in 2017, was he was able to be very clear about firstly having a deal but secondly and almost more importantly parliament's desire it would seem to frustrate its passage so you're actually talking about you know i have this deal it's ready to go oven ready you know all those all those words but uh but i can't get it approved because i have to meet this bar whereby there has to be a full vote and you know it has to be sanctioned by parliament either way i just wonder whether possibly because policies is a mystery to all of us as it unfolds you know, whether actually some of the legal challenges that that Gina was responsible for bringing forward gave Boris ultimately post-election more power than he would have had otherwise and that's it for this week's inside briefing we hope you enjoyed the show my thanks to Hannah Kath Paul thanks so much for joining us pleasure 
As we saw this week, events so often change the direction of a government. But is there anything we should be looking out for next week? Kath? I love it when I get to go first oh, and I get no. the good one. Uh, reshuffle. Oh, damn it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it now looks likely that this is going to happen next Thursday, in which case uh, we will be looking at all sorts of aspects, how, you know, how big the reshuffle is, how many ministers move around, probably not as big as they were talking about uh, in the immediate aftermath of the election. Will any government departments change? All of those kind of big questions. So interested to see. So I think uh, what's really quite urgent in the government's intro right now is finding a replacement uh, for Claire Perry O'Neill, who uh, was uh, unceremoniously uh, let go from her role leading the the government's um, programme of work towards COP26 in Glasgow in November. Um, The the big climate change summit. There's been uh, sort of a battle playing out in the media over her being let go. But really, the question now is who's going to take on that role? And it needs to be a big hitter who can really bring countries together bang heads together uh, in order to uh, get some positive outcome from that really crucial conference. And this is a chance for for the UK to shine but on the other hand Boris Johnson doesn't want Nicola Sturgeon up in Scotland to take all the credit for this. This is really going to play and play for the not very long uh, period until the the COP26. Yeah, that summit will be fascinating because you've got to remember that uh, you're going to get the election of a US president in the week before it happens. Mm. Uh, Trump's record on climate change if he's re-elected it will be very, very interesting. Um, So mine, uh, because everybody else has gone first, uh, (laughs) I'm going to say uh, it's polling day in the Irish elections on Mm. Saturday. There's, I think, a a weird curiosity where they don't even open the ballot boxes until the next day. So we'll find out in a slightly slower time. But obviously, trade negotiations are a big part of uh, the agenda. It looks almost certain that there'll be a change of government because I think the people the person Leo Varadkar the, the Varadkar Taoiseach is, has been struggling yeah looks polls. in a lot of trouble and and frankly he's been the voice that we have been most used to dealing with in this country as one of the sort of uh, the EU member states who's you know has huge interest in in trade negotiations so that'll be interesting I think and um, uh, we haven't really mentioned him, Donald Trump. Though it's been a good, it's been a good week for <laughs> him. So I'm going to be looking out for what happens in the democratic races because, as you said, it actually does have a knock-on effect mm-hmm. on British politics right through this year. Thanks, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stream us on Spotify too. And don't forget to leave Inside Briefing a review too. The government might not be keen on scrutiny, but we're all for it. Just to keep you fully in the loop show we're not about to drop the theme of legal controversy, next week we welcome Geoffrey Cox to the Institute. The Attorney General will be talking to me on Wednesday morning, so make sure to catch that on our live stream. His advice on Brexit, immunity for those giving evidence on Grenfell, there's no end of things to talk about. You can find it on our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, along with all our other work. Until then, goodbye from all of us at Inside Briefing. See you next week.